Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Uh, We have another episode for you today, a bunch of stuff to talk about. Uh, We have the thing that I'm most interested in right now is still coming out of these uh, cryptic, but I think uh, easy to interpret comments from Joe Manchin of West Virginia on the Sunday shows this weekend. And I think, I don't know if he went on every single Sunday show, but he went on like at least three of the four or a bunch of them, you know, where you kind of make the rounds. And these things are very, um, these things don't happen by happenstance, you know, when you when you book yourself on every show and uh, you clearly have one uh, topic that you want to uh, get into with people. And to, in, in, in my mind, it it was a big deal because if you assume that the filibuster in its current form is not going anywhere, which is certainly a, a, a a pretty plausible way to interpret the sort of uh, statements of filibuster worship from, from first from Joe Manchin, but even more from Kirsten Sinema, right? A kind of like her whole ideology is just uh, preserving the filibuster. It's easy to think like, okay, you know, you get the COVID relief bill, which is great. And the cert- certainly the, the first priority. But after that, like, good luck. Like, nothing's going to happen. Um, but Manchin, in my mind, uh, pretty clearly opened the door. And what made it significant to me is that if you talk to the longtime anti-filibuster reformers, mainly ex-staffers, some think tank people and stuff like that. But the people have been on this for a while and are generally not disposed towards uh, aspirational or wishful thinking have been saying for months, don't talk about abolishing the filibuster. Talk about reforming the filibuster and even saving the filibuster. That the only way you're going to make this happen is if you change the mechanisms of the filibuster that the people who either support it or are you know, kind of filibuster curious, if those people can say, we're not getting rid of it, we're saving it, we're, we're reforming it and, and you know, uh, bring it into the 21st century and we're going to ward off forever people who want to get rid of it. And what Manchin said, uh, you know, was exactly from that script, which made me understand what I have, un- what I have, been surprised by, which is the general confidence or optimism of the people who work this issue. You know, when, when there was right when the right after uh, Biden was sworn in, um, there, you know, uh, Joe Manchin made a series of comments basically, yep, I love the filibuster, never getting rid of it. Don't ask me again, because my answer is never going to change for eternity. And then, um, you know, cinema getting in and basically saying the same thing. Uh, but that is, but he's now saying that same kind of thing. 
you know, we're going to reform it or make it more painful or make, you know, make it more painful to do it. And once that's the case, this does not mean, and I think he has also been, Manchin has been very clear, he's not talking about changing the Senate to just 50 votes, when, you know, 51 votes whenever. But you put some limits on the filibuster. Don't make it just a, a easy veto on anything. Suddenly, the big uh, voting rights bill starts to seem more possible. Maybe Democrats don't get everything they want, but like some version of that being possible. Uh, a big, big infrastructure bill suddenly starts to seem m- much more plausible. And, uh, you know, climate, a whole host of things. Now, you know, no party in power gets everything it wants. Certainly not when you have sort of like only like a quasi majority, you have a tie and then you have the vice president. But the whole picture starts to change. So that's one thing we're going to talk about, we're going to get into a number of other issues, which are which are adjacent to that, that are that are big in the news right now. But before we do, let me remind you that uh, you should go out and uh, order some Grady's Cold Brew iced coffee. Grady's Cold Brew is the sponsor of our podcast. It's made from a special blend of 100% Arabica beans, French chicory, and signature spices, and brewed overnight to give you a velvety smooth cup. You can drink iced, hot, or spiked in a cocktail, anything you want. Treat yourself to a gourmet cup of coffee without stepping foot outside, all for less than a buck a cup. If you're ready to give it a swirl, get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. So, uh, David and Kate, what is what is up? What are we talking about? Hey, Josh. Uh, well, Kate and I were talking just before we came on the air. There's a bit of kind of breaking news unfolding pretty much as we're recording, which is the House is expected to cast its final vote for the, the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. It passed the Senate on Saturday. And then, you know, because of the changes to the legislation needs a final House vote before it goes to uh Joe Biden's desk. And uh, one of our favorite TPM characters, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, the QAnon congresswoman from Georgia, pulled a last minute stunt to try to slow things down, to to basically kind of muck up the works. She called for a motion to adjourn. Kate, you wrote this up just just this morning. Kind of tell us what her, I don't know, what her motivation is and what a kind of crash and burn embarrassment it ended up being because there was something like 40 Republicans voted against her motion, right? Yeah. So this is something she's been doing constantly lately. Um, You know, this time she says it's because it's a let me see if I can get the quote right. A woke progressive Democrat wish list. Um, But she's been doing it kind of all the time to gum up the works in the House to the point that Republicans are getting pissed enough that they're going on the record and talking about how they don't like it. now, what, have, what exactly is that able to accomplish? So she calls for a vote to vote to adjourn, which makes everybody come back onto the floor to vote against the motion to adjourn. So everything can keep going. So, you know, that'll recall members from wherever they are, which, you know, including doing committee work, which is not an issue for her because she's not on any committees <laughs> anymore. But, you know, it just really throws a wrench in. And even though it's kind of, you know, it's dumb, like the vote today, I think, took maybe tops 45 minutes, but it just slows everything down, gums up the works, um, pulls people off what they would otherwise be doing. And it's gotten to the point where McCarthy um, in a closed door 
meeting with a conference basically said, if you're going to do this kind of stuff, there has to be some strategy behind it. You can't just keep ruining everybody's day for no ostensible reason. How many times has she done this where it, where it forces a vote? I mean, roughly. I mean, I think four times, like in the, just the past couple of weeks. So I don't know exactly when she learned about this and started doing it. But <laughs> So right. I, I guess the idea is that um, even if you're like a diehard you know, Freedom Caucus Republican, if you're over in the other building doing committee and you have to get up and come back, that's still like annoying to you since it's not actually going to change anything. And as you say, it's or as McCarthy said, it's not part of a, a you know, a messaging strategy or something. It's just something she came up with. Right. I mean, and she has been joined by some other kind of more of the, the hardcore right type people. Um, you know, I think the stud they pulled last week it was, was, uh, basically shutting down what would have been kind of no drama votes on, you know, housekeeping type stuff. Like one of the things was going to be giving a, some kind of gold medal to one of the Capitol police officers who was there, you know, the kind of renaming the post offices type stuff. Um, so that, yeah, they basically shut that down and made it be delayed. And, you know, it's just, it's kind of, almost a, a very honest encapsulation of where that wing of the party is, which is no interest in legislating, obstructing to the point where it's almost this like abstract exercise that what are you even obstructing? It's just obstruction for obstruction's sake kind of thing. Um, yeah, and it's pissing off some other House Republicans who say they would like to kind of target their ire on at least slowing down the Biden administration's priorities and not just everything that the government ever does. Um, but yeah, she pulled that this morning, made everybody come back and vote. And in that way, you know, it, people kind of like to point her out as this um, wild outlier, but Senate Republicans did a version of the same thing. I mean, Ron Johnson made them read the entire relief package, all 630 pages of it. And then you know, Republicans announced a tranche of amendments to force votes on slowing the bill's passage. So, you know, it's kind of the uh, the a childish reaction to knowing that they don't actually have the votes to stopping this package getting passed. So they are just making life as difficult as possible for the Democrats who have the numbers to pass it. And um, out of the House, it's expected to pass this afternoon. Right. I think that's a good point you made, Kate, that the, the Republicans really don't have a governing philosophy. It's all about it's kind of like the own the libs, you know, strategy, basically stand in the way and try to shut things down and go back to your constituents and say, like, look how tough I am and look how I'm kind of fighting against, you know, the woke progressive majority, like you're saying. Well, and the funny thing on that is I just wrote a quick piece before we came on about um, the Republicans kind of attack messaging on the COVID relief plan have just been really all over the place. And I don't know if you could even call it an attack because it's been so half-hearted. But, you know, McCarthy took the floor today and I was going on and on about how socialism is growing in this body and this is a socialist package. Um, and then, you know, you have Mitt Romney doing the more classic Republican, this is wasteful spending, um, you know. And then you have people like Green just basically seeming to base their opposition on the fact that it is a Democratic bill, you know. Um, so... It's just there really hasn't been any kind of unified talking points. It just seems to be using kind of these Republican buzzwords like socialism, liberal wish list um, to 
be against a bill that is, you know, super popular. A new morning consult poll out this morning said that 59% of Republicans are in favor of it, 75% overall, you know, 90% of Democrats. So it's just this kind of like scattershot. Wasn't there one, I, I saw one in that, in that same poll, I think that mm-hmm. even they had, they had a separate grouping, which was 2020 Trump voters. And those were like 55. Okay. Like it was that, that was, I'm pretty sure it's possible it's a different poll, but it was one out this morning. Um, I think there was maybe also a CNN. I, I can't remember. There was, yeah, CNN too. In any case, one of these polls, I think it was the one you're referring to, but I could be wrong about that. Again, created a, this separate category and it was the lowest category, you know, unsurprisingly. Um, but it was striking that it was still majority, you know, yeah. kind of healthy majority support. I mean, I I do think there's a lot of reasons why, you know, the big picture here, I think, is that Democrats are preventing Republicans from running the same playbook that they did in 2009. But to a great degree, what they did in 2009 was we are going to sort of... Um, you know, kind of put down a marker that this is socialism and wasteful and, you know, uh, pork barrel spending for convicted murderers and all these kind of things. And then when we come to vote and things are still, things still kind of suck, we'll say, hey, that's because there was this wasteful socialism, blah, 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 blah. Um, So it kind of fits there, right? You kind of... um, you can't, you know, you can't leave it to other people to define something the way you want it defined. But there is, um, it's, it's, it's just a very different framework. And, and I'm, I am, uh, pleasantly surprised that it has the, you know, the levels of public support that it does. Um, I'm, I'm not surprised that people support the actual things that are in it. But as we have learned in countless ways over decades, that often doesn't matter, right? If it's just some kind of big spending thing and, and you know, that, that was definitely one of the people have talked about a lot about the various lessons learned um, from the early Obama years. And there are, are, are many. Um, but one of them here was definitely even even sort of explicitly the I think the. You know, the Obama brain trust message was basically, look, it's good policy. The stuff that is in there is going to be super good. And that's all that matters. You know, getting into and explaining this, that or the other, that's not what matters. People, you know, the sort of the the proof isn't the proof in the pudding is in the eating or whatever. Um and, and but I think we have learned that that's not true. Um, and there were even other things like a lot of the um, a lot of the equivalent of sort of, you know, cash support aid, they said was supposed to be sort of invisible by the way you sort of tweaked with the tax withholdings. Um, and I think we also know at this point it was just not big enough. Right. There were a lot of substantive problems. But if you think about it, it's really quite remarkable. We're going to sneak it past you, right? We're going to sneak past you the good things we're doing. Um, So, you know, uh, many, many lessons learned. Like you say, Josh, the stimulus package ended up being much smaller than the Obama administration wanted to because they knew that they wouldn't, there weren't 
the moderate Democrats slash Republican votes for having it as big as they wanted, which was initially, funnily enough, 1.2 trillion, you know, which is much smaller than this bill that we're getting passed today. But (coughs) then, you know, that allowed Republicans to kind of turn around and be like, when it didn't work that well because it wasn't big enough they said see this is what happens when you do the pork barrel spending which is something that's different here which it's you know on its face shocking that a 1.9 trillion dollar bill is about to get passed in this day and age and you know all kind of the forecasts that we've had so far especially about the anti-poverty effects of this bill are tremendous you know they're about the poverty rate in 2021 going down by more than a quarter you know having the poverty rate for children in 2021 so i think that's another difference here which is that the fact that they you know democrats and in congress and the biden administration managed to shepherd through a 1.9 trillion dollar bill that's top line hardly came down at all you know means that republicans are not probably so easily going to have this this pivot back to oh and look it didn't it didn't work you know instead democrats are already kind of laying the groundwork for republicans to basically go home to their districts and take credit for a bill that they worked against and didn't vote for you know the other thing that's worth in terms of comparing the two bills something that is worth keeping in mind and you know i'll premise this i'm obviously not an economist but if anything, that somewhat understates how undergunned 2009 was. Because one of the things about about the current financial crisis versus theirs, versus the 2009 one, is this. And, and again, there are uh, real counters to this argument, but broadly, I think there's something to it. Lots of people have actually saved a lot of money during this pandemic, and they didn't lose their assets, right? You know, their home didn't, I mean, some here and there, but the, but the, the key thing in, um, in, in 2009 is that a whole swath of the population, let alone people who just lost their homes, that they lost a lot of their assets. Now, maybe those were inflated assets, blah, 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 but you have this massive reduction of spending power. So you need to kind of hugely goose the economy to to get things moving again. Here, at least to a degree, lots of people are ready to, you know, they still have most of their money. You know, there's many cases where that is not the case, but lots of people still have lots of their money and man, they can't wait to, you know, uh, go on vacation or do this or do that or do the other. So if anything, you needed it to be bigger than this one is. Now, there's a lot of things that this one does that are, um, you know, we obviously didn't have a pandemic. You didn't need to kind of, you know, do a lot, do a chunk of funding just to kind of, you know, uh, uh, get injections into people's arms. And there's a lot of stuff that is, you know, partly relief, but also just sort of changing the playing field in general, things that needed to be done. So in any case, it is compared to what we see now is necessary the 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 bill in um you know the bill in 2009 just wasn't it wasn't even close to something that was going to get you quickly back to growth right yeah i mean at one point like we've been tracking the machinations of joe manchin on everything you know for weeks but it 
I don't know. I think it does just bear taking a minute and realizing that the top line number didn't come down at all. You know, when we were first heading into these negotiations, the Republican position was basically a bill half the size of what ultimately came out, you know, like a, a few hundred billion, maybe. And or even we, a third the size. Wasn't yeah. the, the, the Collins, Collins, Romney et al. proposal, I think, was about six hundred billion dollars. Yeah. No, I think yeah. you're so right. about so, a third. Yeah, right. A third of the size. And then, you know, and the popular wisdom then is, OK, the final product will be somewhere in the middle, you know, and it, the top line didn't come down at all. You know, you had Manchin kind of force the unemployment insurance benefit to come down one hundred dollars a week. Uh, the minimum wage didn't make it in. But I think just compared to the magnitude of the success in this bill, the fact that it looks like it's going to be a hugely effective tool in combating poverty because it's so aimed at low-income people, those losses just seem very small comparatively, not to mention that the fight on the minimum wage at least seems very much like it's going to continue. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm Josh and Ken, I'm curious to get your thoughts on why you feel why there is such overwhelming public support for this legislation, even among Republicans, even a majority among Trump 2020 voters, like you said, Josh, you know, I could think of a few reasons. One is that it's money in people's pockets, right? $1,400 is pretty significant, almost no matter what your situation is, right? I mean, well, and also one one thing that that and I, I hope they do more of this, that you know, there's that whole four, is it 1400 or 2000 considering when the, you know, there's that thing that I think we all know about that, uh, debate, but in a way 14 is really misleading because they expanded the number of people, you know, there's this whole issue with like adult dependence and all this kind of stuff, but really for a family, which, you know, again, if, uh, if you're a family of four, you don't really, and you're the, you're, you're the, you know, you're the husband or you're the wife or you're the kid. You don't really think about, well, I got my 1400. I mean, th that's not how family budgets work. It's the whole thing, right? I mean, uh, obviously different, different families operate different ways, but basically it's the whole thing. And, and in most, in, in many cases, everybody gets it. So what you're really talking about is like, you know, four five, six, seven, seven thousand dollars $7,000, which is for anybody unless you're really well off a significant chunk of money and certainly if you are uh, a family where you know uh, total annual income is you know 40 to 60 to 70 grand or something like that that's a ton of money and that's not even all of the direct cash assistance or separate stuff for you know for for kids and stuff so it's a it's a it's a big deal but to your question I, I kind of do wonder. I mean, I'm kind of pleasant, <clears throat> sort of pleasantly surprised. I mean, I do think that one thing that we have to keep in mind is that we've had several relief bills, and the other ones also had checks. There's a lot of things they didn't have, but th the public is sort of primed that we've had a series of relief bills, and I think people know that even if they were, those were inadequate – they were helpful. You know, people got uh, PPP loans, people got checks, you know, various different kinds of things. So I think some of it is that kind of like, yeah, we need another one. We're still, you know, we're still having a hard time. Um, I think they've made a decent argument about kind of like we need, we need to, um, you know, we need the money for 
vaccine distribution and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of pleasantly surprised that the support seems as robust as it is. Well, and part of it, I wonder is, you know, kind of what I mentioned before, just the, the scattershot nature of the GOP opposition to it. You know, I think if you're kind of a more casual news concern, consumer, there's not really one cohesive argument against the bill that you could that you could cite, you know, throw out as why you don't like it. And I think you're right, Josh, the fact that this is just kind of the latest iteration of pandemic relief means that you already have people who accepted it when it was coming from the Trump administration. So yeah, I just that's think a good point. Yeah. that's asking for sort like of validated of, it. Right. That's just asking yeah. for a lot of mental gymnastics to be like, I liked checks when they came from this person, <laughs> not from this person, even in these polarized times. It, it, it's also, though, this is and this is goes back to sort of how the parties have changed. I, I think another part of this, a, a, a significant part of it, is that Democrats went into this kind of like we're not doing pay fors. We're not getting into a debate about, you know, can we afford it and do we need to do this or that or or, you know, we need a grand bargain in two years. They just jettisoned that whole conversation. And um, that was almost the entire conversation in 2009. You know, what can we afford? What, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, they went into this. And, and if you think about it, within the Democratic caucus, that point has barely been contested. Right. There's obviously the thing on the filibuster. There's there's um, contesting the minimum wage. No one has kind of said, hey, we got to we got to, you know, pay for at least part of this. We got to and not having, you know, when you have that debate, set aside the substance of it. But just the fact that you don't have that debate and having Republicans kind of saying, oh, well, you know, Senator, blah, 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 his concerns about deficit spending. And, you know, that kind of creates a whole thing and something you can grab onto. So the fact that Democrats have provided no validation for that entire area of discussion. I think that cha- that that changes it a lot. Well, and what a good argument for Democrats kind of going full steam ahead with their priorities and kind of ignoring the, the usual Republican belly aching. You know, I think you're right in that all it did is create less headlines about, you know, fighting over how to pay for it and everything. And it also, it just went faster when they're not kind of waiting around for like the Susan Collins, will she, won't she thing. They just got it done and got it out the door. And I, while I think that's easiest to do on something like this, where there's a a current and steadily worsening problem, you know, the Biden administration just kind of came in, had their few meetings with Republicans to be like, hey, we're playing ball and then went ahead as planned and it worked. Yeah, I, I'm curious. One here, one thing I, I I don't really know how you can find this out because it has to, it it relies on people's candor, which is which is highly unlikely to be available. <laughs> but I'm curious how much of this is as uh, Senate Republicans expected, or whether they were thinking it was still going to be a version of 2009. Um, and, and clearly they, they work, you know, the whole thing about, oh, Biden promised unity and now he's not giving us unity and, and we have no veto on his legislative agenda. Clearly that was an effort to kind of pry some of that back. 
but I mean, even even when just when we started, I saw um, I saw a headline of Susan Collins basically being very upset about Chuck Schumer, basically blaming her for what happened in two thousand nine. And um, like, I don't remember exactly. I mean, I think there's there's some very small case that I guess she did end up going along with some things, blah, 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 blah. But basically that every Democrat says very volubly, yeah, we're not doing that shit again. You know, you played us too many, t- like we're done. And, and I, I, I think at some level... Republicans didn't quite get the pent up, not just frustration and anger, but just kind of like we're we learned the we learned our lesson. You're not going to be able to do that again. Yeah. Well, maybe we can shift gears, talk about the filibuster and what the future holds for that. Um, Kate, you know, Josh gave us a good summary of Manchin's comments over the weekend at the top of the show. What what struck you about those? Because I know you've you've been covering the future of the filibuster and, you know, you you joined our Adam Gentleson briefing of several weeks ago. And so I'm just curious what your reaction was to Manchin and and has that changed your thinking about, you know, the future of it? Yeah. So I basically wrote last week that if you kind of read the tea leaves, um, both Cinema and Manchin seem to be leaving the door open to reform. Um, this is before Manchin went on his kind of media circuit, but Cinema stuck out, stood out to me because we had a reader send us in her, like the stock letter that she responds to filibuster inquiries with. And um, it's only a few paragraphs long, but she talks about the talking filibuster, the death of the talking filibuster, the necessity for debate in the Senate multiple times in this short letter, which, you know, kind of struck me as, okay, so she says she won't kill the filibuster. She also says it's really important to her that there's debate on Senate bills and specifically highlights the death of the talking filibuster where it switched to when it is what it is today, where you basically just have to send an email to trigger uh, the filibuster proceedings. So that seemed notable to me. And then you kind of had Manchin, meanwhile, you know, yelling at some reporter being like, Jesus Christ, stop asking me. I'm never going to kill it, blah, blah, blah. And then also starting out the administration with all these comments when people would ask him about the filibuster saying, you know, my number one priority is that Joe Biden has a successful presidency. And we were like, well, how do you square those two things? You know, this would be how you square it is it's fine. They won't kill the filibuster. They're being unambiguous about that. But then you have Manchin go on these TV shows and say he wants to make it more painful for the minority uh, to filibuster, which is basically Adam Gentleson kind of ran us through on this inside briefing that there are reforms that you can do to force the minority to hold the floor when they're filibustering and to, you know, actually put force them to that there's a punishment to filibustering, um, you know, a disincentive to do it on every single thing the majority tries to do and to bring back the part of the filibuster, which, you know, don't want to gloss it over, was pretty much only used to uh, interfere with civil rights legislation. It definitely has a dark history that especially the talking filibuster does, but was used then to try to change people's minds about the legislation, not just stymie everything the majority tries to do. So now they're kind of presenting an opening for that, which is really important time-wise, because now that we're basically done with the COVID relief package, you know, some of the thought was that the next big kind of ambitious thing that the Biden administration wanted to do was the infrastructure 
slash jobs package. And I think some of the early thought was that they could use uh, reconciliation to do that too and kind of circumvent the filibuster problem. But now we have Manchin saying that he's going to insist that at least they try to start going through regular order um, before using reconciliation. So now we're kind of at this place where whatever happens next in Congress is going to at least start going through regular order. And that's inevitably going to bring up the filibuster fight. Um, And, you know, Dick Durbin, who's uh, in Senate leadership, told reporters yesterday kind of a rough outline that they're going to bring two or three popular bills to the floor, which you can probably bet include the uh, For the People Act, the voting rights package that the House recently passed to basically force the conversation, force the debate, see how far cinema and mansion will go on reform. Because, you know, as we've been saying on this podcast for weeks, as soon as you have to go through normal order with a filibuster in place, that's kind of the end of Biden's legislative agenda unless something changes. Curious, um, Josh or Kate, if you have a sense of which legislative priority might ultimately trigger the demise of the filibuster or the reforms such as, you know, such that it will be, you know, actual progress or unrecognizable from its previous form. Is it the minimum wage or is it the HR1 package? You know, do you have a sense of what what the uh, what the catalyst might be? It's funny. Like, on the one hand, the minimum wage thing seems like the obvious thing. Everybody can understand that it's popular. It's it's there's, you know, huge. not just support, but militancy behind it among, you know, among Democrats, especially progressive Democrats, but really, you know, kind of across the board. But it's sort of, uh, the footwork is sort of funny. If you were going to, you know, it's hard to make the final case for majority rule on a bill that you don't have, you don't seem to have majority support for, right? I mean, that how does that work? Because it 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 seems pretty clear that, um, you know, some of those eight Democrats who voted against it in that Voterama amendment thing, I don't think they're like Harper put out a statement basically saying, "Yeah, I'm for 15, but we need to." you know, we need to phase it in a little less aggressively or something like that. And I think he's basically talking about concerns that, you know, kind of coming out of the pandemic, you can't hit businesses that quickly with that big a, you know, a, 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 um, a labor cost increase, blah, 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 blah. But still, I, how do you how do you do that exactly? I mean, do you in, I, I don't think like maybe you could do it for you know thirteen dollars, but then you get like lots and lots of Democrats really upset that you're you know that you're conceding on that. So the minimum wage seems like the obvious one to me, but like I'm not so sure how that works. If that's really the one you expect everything to come down on, right? And I think. I mean, it has to be something that Manchin slash Cinema slash the other Democrats who don't love the idea of reforming the filibuster want, you know, that just seems like the basic central well, is, thing. Isn't, isn't there, uh, I, I thought I saw somewhere where one example of where Manchin said, you know, the change might come for him is uh, 
the the you know the, the the voting rights bill, which I think is they're they're they they titled it HR one. Am I correct about that? Yeah, okay, HR one, which I was, you know, okay, that's you know great. I'm glad he's on on board with that. I mean, it's it's a funny thing because that uh, I don't I don't know. I mean that you know Republicans are very dug in. You know they're really against voting. Right. It, it, and so I'm not sure you're going to get the kind of numbers that you're seeing with the with the relief bill. We're kind of like, you know, even like a huge majority of Republicans are, are you know, a, a substantial majority of Republicans are for it. On the other hand, that bill is really existential for not just for democracy, but for Democrats. Right. I mean, the if you got rid of and that's a whole other d- discussion that I'm yeah, curious about how. Um, what experts on this expect the, you know, court challenge fate will be of the provisions of that bill that get rid of part, you know, partisan uh, uh, gerrymandering. But on just a lot of fronts, you, you if, if for Democrats, you need to make sure that people are still going to be able to vote in 2022, right? And, 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 partisan so maybe that's it although again that is a kind of thing you know for unfortunately for a lot of people voting rights is very amorphous and what does it mean and why don't you need an id to vote we all have ids what's the problem you know there, it's it's not it, it it's a uh it's a lot harder to understand than like you know we're going to send your family six grand well, I think a couple things. One is if we're looking kind of to the House for clues of what that legislation is going to be, not that it necessarily has to pass in the House first, it could pass in the Senate. But if you're thinking of a situation where you're trying to put pressure on the senators to get this passed, you know, it, it follows that the House has already done it, then it's the last stop, then it becomes law, you know. And if we look at what the House has passed lately, it's been H.R. 1, Um it was the Labor Act they did last night. Um, and then Nancy Pelosi said yesterday that she'll have more to say on the minimum wage, on raising the minimum wage during her Thursday press conference. So kind of previewing that either as a standalone or into the infrastructure bill, you know, she's going to have something to say on that legislation. So that from just the kind of movement in on the hill seems to be where the pressure points kind of are right now and specifically on hr1 when i was doing some reporting with filibuster types you know activist types or those who are um especially connected to who used to work for harry reed who are tend to be like adam gentless and have become like the most kind of radicalized on the badness of the filibuster all of them said it would be the voting rights package that would move the needle because you know, they were thinking the tension after if Democrats did well enough, you know, to be in control of the chambers enough to control the legislative agenda. You have the backdrop of an election that Democrats just won narrowly, you know, that's going to kind of add some emotional uh, resonance to this package. And then now, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if congressional leaders are kind of looking around at the state of Republican state legislatures all over the country that are doing this massive assault on voting rights, you know, especially in states that Republic or the Democrats won narrowly for the first time in decades. You know, you look at Georgia and Arizona, it's just an all out kind of assault. Um, And so I 
that would be my best guess just because I think we've already seen congressional action around it. Um, it's something Democrats are really passionate about. Um, and there is an existential threat, you know, all those things seem to me to be, uh, kind of ingredients that would raise it on the list. When, when I think about it, kind of by a process of elimination, I think it kind of has to be. I mean, there is that problem I described that voting rights, unfortunately, again, it's amorphous. A lot of things that are really important are hard to explain to people, you know, things like voting, voting, uh, voter ID. I mean, it, it is really bad, but you ask any voting rights person will tell you, yes, our position votes terribly, uh, uh, polls terribly. It's just, it's just a reality. But um, there, are, there are those problems with the other issues and problems just the, the way I described. You know, how are you going to make your 50, you know, 51 vote case when you got 48 votes? That doesn't that doesn't really that doesn't really work. Um, and I, I really think. To the point, a lot of it will be hard for a lot of those members, including people like Manchin and, and Cinema, not to look at it and say, we're not going to be in power in two years unless we do this. And not that not that it guarantees that they'll still be in power. But at least from from my perspective, Democrats could easily lose the House before the election even happens with with partisan gerrymandering. So I, like I've been thinking, I think it is quite plausible that you will have a 2020, 2022 election where the economy is doing really well, which again, you know, come out of the pandemic, you, you, you inject a ton of money into the economy. This isn't like, you know, kind of uh, rosy-eyed thinking. There's a good chance that is going to be the case. So economy's doing well. People are liking Joe Biden. Uh, Democrats actually pick up, pick up seats in the Senate and yet lose the House just because they've, it, it's already done with, 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 with gerrymandering. Before you even get into all the restrictions on, you know, actually being able to vote, you know, just with read, you know, just, just with that. So that, 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 that does make sense to me. That's my best guess too, um, as to 2022, but, and then you also, I think another thing that would probably make the voting act more likely to be the thing than the minimum wage is you have some Republicans at least pretending like they want to play ball on the minimum wage. You know, you had, um, Romney and someone else who I don't remember at this moment coming up with a an 11 hour or $11 minimum wage, but then they kind of like stuffed in this poison pill of the companies would have to use E-Verify to make sure they're not getting, not hiring undocumented workers, which seems kind of purposely planted in there to make it a non-starter with Democrats. But the fact that they are pretending like they will want to negotiate also, I think, would make a mansion less likely to kind of pull the trigger there because he'll be excited about the the facade of bipartisanship. Whereas, you know, on voting rights, there is not going to be a single Republican even pretending like they're interested in doing that. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Maybe that's a good place to leave it for this week. Um, I know we didn't get a chance, Kate, to talk about your reporting on the Capitol you know, Insurrection Commission, but next week we could uh, return to that. Maybe there'll be more to share at that point, too. 
Cool. Well, remember, uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. All right. All right. Talk to you next week. Later, folks. Bye.